And this morning, I want us to, uh, if you have your Bibles and you can follow along, and uh, I'm going to read uh, verse 1, and I'm going to read through verse 15, okay, of Mark chapter 16, verse 1 down through verse 15. You can, uh, if you have a different, I'm reading from the ESV, if you have a uh, King James, New King James, we'll all wind up at the same spot. But we're going to read beginning at verse 1 of Mark chapter 16. And this is, of course, this is the resurrection. That's how Mark ends. And uh, as I've said, if each week we, we did it a little out of order uh, with Easter and uh, the, the uh, Passion Sunday where we jumped ahead and talked about the cross and the resurrection. So we've kind of done things a little bit out of order these last several weeks. But in just finishing up, this is where Mark finishes and we're going to focus in on a particular issue that we see here. But just to kind of give, it a, give us a context, uh, just follow with me as I read. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and, the Mary, and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought sp- spices so that they might go and anoint him. Jesus has uh, been crucified. He's been put in the tomb. And it says, And very early on the first day of the week, that's Sunday, when the sun had risen... They went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Now, let me just pause there. If they were part of some big scheme to steal the body of Jesus, and this was all a big scam, do you think they'd be worried about how are we going to get into the tomb? Who's going to roll away the stone? That wasn't the thought. They were just trying to figure out how are we going to get in there. And looking up, verse 4, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, an angel of some sort, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. I would be alarmed. And he said to them, this angel said to them, Do not be afraid. Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee, that Jesus is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. And many of your Bibles, you'll see a little note there, a little, because in the earliest Greek manuscripts, the uh, mark ends at verse 8. So there's some question, uh, and this is not a attack on the Bible, but some, of the, some question as far as verses 9 through the end come, they find those in later manuscripts. So they just put that little note in there saying that some of the early manuscripts do not have verses 9 through 20, just to let you kind of know. So there's a, whole, there's a whole discussion on that. But most of your Bibles have verses 9 through 20, has that little note just to kind of let you read. But we're going to, read, we're going to continue and read verse 9. Now, when he rose early on the first day of the week, he, Jesus, appeared to Mary Magdalene, for whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him, and as they mourned and wept, went and told the disciples, as they mourned and wept, But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, it says they would not believe it. 
After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. Luke tells us these in Luke 24 about those two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And so when they went back and told the rest that they had seen Jesus, the disciples, what? They didn't believe him. Oh, great men of faith and power, aren't they? Afterward, he, Jesus, appeared to the eleven. You know why there's eleven? Because Judas is not among them. He appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart. Why? Because they did not believe those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Let's pray. Father, we uh, are humbled by your word and we are humbled by, Lord, just the privilege that we have here in this country at this time as Jim led us in reminding us of those brothers and sisters that do not have the the Bible, do not have the Word of God at such easy access, but we thank you for your revealed willed will through Scripture. We can hear your voice speak to us today through the Word of God. Lord, may we give attention in our heart and our spirit to hear what the Spirit of the Lord says to the church today. In Jesus' name, amen. What I want us to look at that I found as I was reading this, and because we talked about the resurrection on Easter Sunday and uh, didn't want necessarily, uh, you don't have to wait till Easter to talk about the resurrection because every Sunday is Easter Sunday. That's why we meet on the first day of the week, right? But what I found interesting in verses 11 through 14 was this this, uh, picture among these followers, these disciples. uh, And again, let me just go back and look at verse 11. It says... uh, Uh, that Mary, when she went and told those, verse 10, when she went and told those that she had seen him, remember they they were mourning and weeping because Jesus is dead. They weren't expecting a resurrection. And when they heard it, they heard that he was alive and seen by her. They didn't believe it. And so these two others, he appeared to them as they were walking into the country. And as I said, Luke talks about them in Luke 24. And they went back and reported they had seen Jesus, and the disciples didn't believe him. And then Jesus appears to the eleven, and they're reclining at the table, which was the common way that they ate and they, they sat, and, and he rebuked them. Why? For their what? Unbelief and hardness of heart. And I don't know why, as I was looking at that and praying, I said, now how can we how can we kind of finish Mark? Uh, what, what uh, you know, I, I mean, you know, it's always easy to talk about the resurrection. That's easy. That's wonderful and great. But I kept seeing in these four verses, I kept seeing this situ- these words of unbelief. They didn't believe. They didn't believe. And they wouldn't hear. They wouldn't accept. And, and I kept thinking, these are the men who've walked with Jesus. They've been with Jesus. They've seen miracles, they've seen a man or men, you know, raised from the dead, they've, I mean, they, you would think that if there was anyone, if there was anyone that would be just waiting and said, uh, we've been waiting for you to be risen from the dead, we're, we're here waiting, you would think it would be these guys, right? And you had these women, it's interesting, God chose women to be the first 
preachers of the resurrection, right? And they came and they said, we want you to hear, we've seen him, he's alive. And they just said, you're dreaming, you're, that's not true, we don't. And then Jesus appears before them. And what does he do? He rebukes them. Now, I don't know about you, but that wouldn't be the first thing I'd want Jesus to do, is to rebuke me. But he rebukes them for their unbelief. But also, notice what it says there, he rebukes them not only for their unbelief, but their hardness of heart. Now, that's how Mark uh, and at the other Gospels, but, just, but Mark just seems to emphasize it with these situations a little more than the other Gospel writers of Matthew and Luke in, in this, this unbelief of these disciples. And when you think about it, each of the Gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they have an intended purpose in why they write what they write in this account, okay? Mark is considered the first uh, recorded record of, of the Gospels. And they all have the intent in why they're writing what they're writing is so that you would believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that He's the Messiah. That's why they're doing what they're doing. They're not just kind of, you know, pinning a bar. They're writing it with an intent. They're writing it with a purpose that you would believe that Jesus is the Son of God. In fact, when you read the Gospel of John and you read around verse uh, chapter 20, around maybe 21, I'm not sure, Um, that John even says that the reason he has written all that he's written previously about Jesus is so that you would believe that Jesus is the Son of God. So the whole intent of what's happening is belief. And how does Mark end? With great men and great faith and great belief? No, just almost kind of like a thud. They're, they're laying around whining and crying because they figure, boy, these three and a half years have been interesting, but what are we going to do now? Remember, you read about Peter? He went back fishing, and one of the gospel writers writes, and, and he just kind of, uh, you know, he just figures, I'm going back to the business. And, and they had no concept, or I shouldn't say they didn't have any concept. They certainly had a concept. They just didn't believe Jesus, and that's why he rebuked them. And I got thinking about this, and I thought, how interesting that how Mark ends this, not with maybe the way I would write it. I would write it where these disciples, I mean, they're like, man, they, I mean, they are just walking, talking men of faith. Doesn't, doesn't kind of end that way, does it? They, it ends with Mark portraying these followers of Jesus, been with him three and a half years, kind of normal human beings, Right? kind of like maybe like us, because we tend to look back and think, oh, if I was with Jesus, if I was walking with Jesus, if I could witness that feeding of the 5,000, if I could see him raise Lazarus from the dead, oh, that, I tell you, I would never waver. Yeah, you would, because these guys did. They were not expecting the resurrection. They thought, well, you know, Jesus, he said it, but that's impossible, right? I mean, think about it. We, kind of, we talk about it like it's a normal, regular occurrence. But the idea of a man being killed and being buried for three days and walking out bodily, come on now, right? We get used to talking about it, but when you stop and think about it, that's really kind of impossible. That's the whole idea, right? So what about unbelief? It may shock you. You may never want to come back here to church to hear 
that this pastor has times where I struggle with doubt and unbelief. And I bet many of you, most of you, do as well at times. There's times in which you find, as one old saint talked about, the dark night night of the soul. There's times when we go through situations and we go through depression, we go through anxiety, we go through death, we go through a bad uh, report from a doctor, whatever. And we go through and we question God even just this, God, are you, are you paying attention? Are you there? Is this all that I've known and done for these years of my life? And you hate to admit it to think, is this true? And you begin to question, you begin to waver. And there's, there's times in which we all doubt. I believe we all doubt. And sometimes we are, or most of the time, that's one of the things where we're afraid to admit. Because if I admit or I ask and I question, God, why? Or I'm just not sure I can make that leap of faith. And all of a sudden, people may think that maybe I'm not a Christian or maybe by the fact that I actually doubt. Maybe that somehow shows that I'm not a believer. I'm really not a Christian because if I was a Christian, if I was a strong believer, I wouldn't question. I wouldn't doubt. I would have a strong faith that never wavers. I would never question the whys, but I'm going to tell you right now, that just isn't the case for my life, and I bet it isn't the case for your life. We go through seasons and times of unbelief and doubt, and I'm not talking about unbelief in the sense of where a person is unbelieving to the gospel. I'm really talking more specifically about Christians, people who embrace the gospel, who believe the Word of God is true, and that Jesus is the Son of God, and and uh, he was crucified for our sins and resurrected on the third day, and he's coming back. Christians who believe these truths, and we have made and have a relationship with Jesus, that there are times in which we waver. There are times in which we experience and can relate to these disciples who just didn't believe. They just didn't. They doubted what these women were telling them, that they were, they were nuts. They were crazy. You know, there are various ways in which we experience doubt. Uh, on Wednesday nights, we are in a series called The Case for Christ, and that is intended to address certain doubts relating to uh, the, the faith of Christianity, you know, as far as is, is the historic, historicity of the Bible and Jesus, are those authentic, are they true? And because there are doubts, and we call that apologetics. We're not apologizing, it just comes from the Greek word that means to give a defense for is what apologia in the Greek means. Apologetics is a a school of theology uh, that is about defending the Christian faith. And so there are people who have doubts about the veracity of the historicity and authenticity of Christianity, and so that's what that's for. And then there's doubts that are more internal, uh, begin to doubt and question and you know, am I saved? Um, am I born again? Or do I, am I really following God's will for my life? And we have those kinds of doubts that we struggle with. Is, is, is my life on living on purpose for Christ? And, and then we have more experiential or emotional doubts when something happens to us or to somebody near and dear us, and we begin to just question why this tragic death? Why, God, uh, did this happen to this person? And why is this happening to me? And uh, God, you know, where were you when 
I was being abused by a family member. Uh, you know, we have those kind of doubts and, and questions. But what, what happens a lot of times is, at least my experience in, in Christianity in the church, is we just find it uncomfortable uh, to talk about those things, to admit, even to one another, I'm struggling with belief. We sometimes need to read what Thomas said. Remember when Jesus, uh, he, he was late for, you know, when Jesus appeared to, as a resurrected, you know, and he appeared to the disciples and Thomas wasn't there. And what did Thomas? Unbelief, right? He said, I am not going to believe unless I do what? He was a man from Missouri. Now, some of you don't even know what that means. But he said, I am not going to believe unless I do what? I touch him. You know, I'm there. I see him. And Jesus, in his grace and mercy, allowed Thomas to do that. Touch his side. Put his hand. I mean, he experienced those things. And then what did Thomas do? He, he, the Bible says he fell. and He said, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, you know, you've seen, but blessed are those who believe but have not seen. But Jesus did not rebuke Thomas. How dare you? You don't believe. I mean, no, he graciously revealed himself to Thomas. So questioning and doubt, that just seems to be a part. I mean, if these 11 disciples, with all that they experienced and knew, questioned and doubted, we shouldn't be fearful to admit our own questions and our own unbelief at times. There's whole books of the Bible that are written. Habakkuk, that's in the Bible. I didn't cough. Habakkuk, uh, and uh, that, that whole book is about questioning God and why are you doing this? Job, right? How about many of the Psalms? You know, God, where art thou? <laughs> you know, where are you? I mean, so the Bible is full of men and women that struggle with doubt and unbelief. So this morning, I want us to spend a little time looking at that as we conclude Mark. And I'm just struck by that in Mark uh, of how he ends with these pictures of unbelief. And I started to say this. You know, if I was writing, if I was going to write my gospel and I was going to write it, I mean, as I said, I would make sure that everybody in there was perfect. I wouldn't put any bad sides or bad, you know, I would just want to make sure that, Dan, I put the best foot forward and best image, but that's why I believe the Bible is the Word of God, because God just puts it all right out. And he, humanity and weakness and failure, but yet he still calls us to himself. He still loves us and, and, uh, and, and abides with us, even though he's dealing with a bunch of struggling, doubting people. Uh, even up to the end, remember when Jesus was praying and the Bible said the prayer was so intense that droplets of blood, he was sweating out of his, his pores and he went back to his disciples and what are they doing? They're holding hands and singing, you know, victory in Jesus, right? They're sleeping, they're sleeping. There's no sense of urgency and I'm afraid that I'd probably be napping with them in my own unbelief and humanity. Many people think that if you doubt, it's unforgivable. Well, uh, it's not unforgivable to David or Job or Thomas. It's not a lack of faith because you struggle. Interesting scripture before we uh, zero in a little bit more on this. Uh, Jesus was asked by his disciples, just listen, you may, if you want to write the note down, it's interesting to maybe look up later, that when his disciples asked him, what must we do, or what must uh, we do to do the works 
What must we do to do the works that God requires? And Jesus answered in John 6, 28 and 29. Listen to this. Jesus said, the work of God is this, to believe in the one that he has sent. Now, he's not, he's not saying that we work for salvation. We work for God. But let me ask you, is work, working to maintain belief, is sometimes that, what is work? Work is labor, toil, effort, right? Do you ever feel like you have to work at believing? I do. Because I don't know about you, my experience, I do not live in a Sistine Chapel in North Lakeland. I live in a real world just like you. And Every day I'm assaulted by doubt and, and my own sinful nature and all the stuff that you walk in and do. And you know what? It is labor to maintain. Again, I'm not trying to work in labor to stay saved. That's not what I'm talking about. But I'm working and fighting against unbelief. I'm fighting and working to stay strong and to stand. You know the Scripture in Ephesians, we won't look at it, I just thought of it earlier in Ephesians 6 where it says, finally be strong in the Lord and His mighty power and talks about putting on the full armor of God and take your stand against the devil's schemes for we struggle not against flesh and blood. It says it's a struggle. Hello? It's, not a, it's a struggle. It's a fight. It's a working And he says later, he says, when you've taken your full armor and the evil day comes and you stand your ground and after you've done everything, you stand. That's not a passive Christianity. That's a a working, that's working faith, action faith. James says, faith without works is what? So again, we're not working for faith. We're not working for salvation. But the Christian life is not passive. It's an engagement because the enemy and sin and all these things are working against us every day, every second. Now, we stand in the power of Christ, but we struggle against these things. We're working and we're doing the work of God to believe. Turn in your Bibles real Just keep something maybe in Mark 16, but I want you to give you an example. I think the best illustrations in Scripture or best illustrations of truth are often found just in Scripture. Look over to Matthew 11. Just take a left and go to Matthew 11. Give an example of someone who struggled with doubt and how Jesus responded. I found this really encouraging to me. Matthew 11. This is John the Baptist, John the Baptizer. Not John the Southern Baptist, but John the Baptizer, okay? And because we're in Mark, how does Mark begin? Mark does not begin right out of the box with Jesus. He begins with John the baptizer, John the Baptist, as fulfillment of prophecy, as one who would come before the Messiah and uh, proclaim about this Jesus. And, he, and, he, and so Mark's gospel opens up with John the Baptist, John the Baptizer, who also in, a, in the human uh, relationship is a cousin to Jesus, okay? And there's a very interesting account of John in Matthew 11, and we see in verse 1, Matthew 11, when Jesus had finished 
instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and to preach in their cities. Verse 2, now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ. Now, let me just stop there. Remember, John the baptizer is in jail. He's in prison. He confronted Herod over his adultery. Didn't go over so well. (laughs) And so Herod put him in prison. That's why John is there. And we eventually know that John was beheaded, murdered, martyred. But he's in prison and he's hearing, maybe from, well, we know maybe from his own, he had disciples and people that were part of his ministry, and he was hearing about the works of Jesus, okay? Verse 2, I'll read it again. And when he heard, now when John, this is not the apostle John, this is John the Baptist, when he heard while he was in prison about the deeds of the Christ or this Messiah that, remember, he, that he was announcing, he, he said... Uh, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. At one point he said, when he saw Jesus and he was, I think maybe John the Baptist was baptizing, and he saw his cousin in an earthly, but yet he saw him not as his cousin. He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Yeah, he was his cousin, but he saw him as the Messiah, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he said, when he heard about the deeds of Christ, verse 2, he sent word by his disciples. In other words, he sent word by John the Baptist, his disciples. Disciple just means followers. He sent word back. And look at this. And he sent word back so they'd go back to Jesus and ask the Messiah, Jesus, this question from John the Baptist who's in prison. What does he ask him? Are you the one who is to come, or do we need to wait and look for somebody else? Wait a minute. This is the guy who said, Behold the Lamb of God. I'm not worthy to untie his shoes. What's happening? He's doubting. He's wavering. Prison, I don't know. I've never thankfully been in prison other than a tour. That's about the extent of it. Made sure they didn't shut the door behind me. One of my early ministries in Bible school was going to the jail in Columbia, South Carolina at 7 a.m. on a Sunday morning to preach, which I didn't really preach, you know, in the jail cell to everybody that was there or was brought in the night before. That's a really fun crowd. You ought to try it sometime. They're really, they're, that's what they want to hear at 7 a.m. is a bunch of young, you know, Bible school students coming in and waking them up and talking to them, Okay. I would imagine that from listening and reading and talking to others who have been in jail, and maybe you have, and thankfully you're not now, right? That it's not a pleasant place. I think about people uh, followed the story of Aaron Hernandez, the football player for the uh, New England Patriots that was convicted of murder, and then they found him hung in his cell suicide about a month ago, and you read his story and for some reason just found it fascinating to his life. Father died at 15 and just moved in the wrong crowd and just all those things and yet signed a three or four million dollar contract at 23 years of age and 
And yet his life ended where he hung himself in a jail cell. I would imagine, and he was facing life imprisonment, 23 years of age, former star of the New England Patriots. I don't know about you, but that had to be one of the darkest, darkest. It says that he had written John 3.16 and that somehow that he was, so I just pray that he came to know Christ. But my point is, it had to be a very dark depressing, hopeless place. So let's not be too hard on John for having this moment, dare I say, of panic, of doubt. Look with me back at Matthew 11. He sent messengers to ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And when Jesus got that word, listen to how he answers these messengers sent from John in prison. Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. Go tell John what you hear and see. And he gives six things. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. You go tell John what you hear and what you see. Now, I find it interesting at what he did not tell him. He didn't tell him, you go tell John that I am the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. I am the Messiah. You go tell John that we are, we are having a good time making these Pharisees look like fools. You go tell John that I can walk on water. You go tell... No. You know what he tells them? He gives these six things of evidences. And I, got, I thought about that. I thought, well, wouldn't that be consistent with Jesus' mission statement that when he began his ministry, he was in his hometown synagogue, and he opened up the scroll and read from the prophet Isaiah and attributed this prophetic word from Isaiah to himself, where he said, this is fulfilled in your hearing. You remember when he said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, set at liberty those who are oppressed, and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is what he was saying in essence. This is what he was saying, I believe, in essence. You go back and tell John that in my name, the hurting people of the world are being transformed by the Messiah. What is the evidence that he pointed to? Transformed, changed lives by Christ. That was the evidence. You go back and tell John, people are being changed. What I love, verse 7 of Matthew 11, it says that as John's disciples went away, where they still were in hearing distance, I love what Jesus says in their hearing about John. It says in verse 7, as they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see, a man dressed in soft clothing? 
Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go and see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. Look down at verse 11. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. It's almost as if he's saying, because you know they would report that back. Hey, you ought to hear what the Messiah said. It's almost as Jesus is saying, John, hey, it's cool. I'm not bothered you doubting me, but John, I don't doubt you. I know you're my man. I know you're my man. I know you're the one that God sent to proclaim and pave the way for my coming. John, I don't doubt you. And you know, and I thought about that, and I thought, you know, here was somebody really tied into Jesus, and he questioned and doubted, and God, are you, Jesus, are you really it? And Jesus did not rebuke him. He didn't push him away. He said, yes, and he did not, he did not. He said, John, there's no one greater than John. A doubter? One that would question the Messiah? Jesus said, no one greater than this John. This morning, let me suggest to you, in our time remaining, five, if you struggle with unbelief, if you struggle today with, you may have been a Christian 10 years, 20 years, you may have been a Christian 10 months, 10 days. You've heard me say this phrase when we, uh, I think it was one of the first sermons I preached here in Psalm 23 about uh, the, the, the um, walking through the valley in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. And it says, talking about even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And here, here is the way life is. Here's the way the Christian life is. You're either in a valley you're coming out of a valley or you're getting ready to go into a valley. The valley in the Bible is a picture of, 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 of struggle, of trial, of, of, of darkness at times, of questioning. And, but notice what it says, even though I walk through, we don't stay in the valley, but we will pass through the valley. Let me give you these five thoughts in our time this morning, and hopefully this encourages someone here this, this morning. If you struggle with doubt, unbelief, I believe these are biblical and wise words, not because I say them, but because the Word of God affirms them. Number one, admit your doubts and ask for help. John, what did he do? He reached out to his cousin. He reached out to the Messiah. He reached out for help, right? If you're struggling with doubt, if you're struggling with unbelief, and it could be the death of, of a loved one. Whatever the circumstance, it, you just feel this, this spiritual uh, angst, this spiritual pressure. And you don't want to admit it because you might be a leader in the church. You might be somebody that people look up to. And the last thing you want to admit is, I'm struggling with belief. Oh, you mean like just, you know, it's going to be a good day? No, no. I mean, I, I'm, I'm struggling with just believing this whole thing's true. I'm, I'm struggling. Reach out to somebody. Pray. You know, God is not fragile. He can handle your questions. He's got the whole world in His hands. He controls the universe. You're not going to disrupt that. He's a big God. He doesn't need your help in running the universe. He's not going to get upset. But what you do is you pray and say, God, let me be honest and confess because He knows your heart already. But Father, I'm struggling with some doubt and unbelief in this area or whatever it is. But part of how God uses 
his ministry is for you to, to seek someone, uh, uh, me or uh, an elder, a deacon, someone who, again, is, is somebody who is in the faith, and, and you look at them, and, and they probably, if they're honest, they would admit, yeah, I struggle with that too at times. There's times, let me tell you about this time in my life when I went through this situation, and I really struggled with believing that God even cares or loves me. But let me tell you how God helped me navigate through that. Let me, let me open Scripture and, and tell you to some of the promises that God really allowed me to feed upon. Seek someone. That's why, that's why if you come to this church and this is it, you're going to have a very hard time and struggle and limited. If you're not connecting relationally and you're growing in this church, you're going to really have a hard time. Because the Christian faith is not something you can do as a solo act. We belong and we're connected. The Bible says, encourage one another, lift each other up. One of the ways that we do that is by being there to assist and to counsel and to love on one another. And some of you have experienced that in your time in not just this church, but in your walk with Christ. So first, admit your doubts and ask for help. Secondly, don't be afraid to borrow someone's faith. Now, what do I mean by that? I thought about this one time I heard this pastor say it, and then I, I have said it various times, where a woman came to him, and she said, I'm just really struggling, and, and I feel like I'm losing my faith. And he told her, he said, hey, don't worry about it. Borrow some of mine. And I thought, hey, that's pretty good. I like that. that somebody, I'll say it, and they'll think I'm really wise or whatever. And so I've said that at times when people have said, I'm losing my faith. I'm struggling to hold on. I say, that's okay. Borrow some of mine. You know what? Sometimes just coming alongside someone is sometimes all we need, right? What is one of the names of the Holy Spirit? Is a helper. Uh, the Greek word parakletos means one who comes alongside. That's a pretty good role that some of us need. Not We're trying to be the Holy Spirit, but sometimes that's what we need to do. Not come in like one of Job's friends with all the ready answers. That's not what we need to hear sometimes, do we? We just need someone to come alongside of us. If somebody's in the hospital and they've experienced tragedy or death. That's not the time to come in with, hey, let me give you my 18 verses of how to... No, you know what they just need to do? You need to do what the Bible says, weep with those who weep, right? So sometimes we need to maybe just connect a little closer to somebody and tag on to their faith. Thirdly, not only we admit our doubts and ask for help, don't be afraid to borrow someone's faith, but thirdly, act on your faith. Act on your faith. Act on what you know and not on what you don't know. If you ever remember in the book, of Hebrews chapter 11, the great hall of faith chapter, says time and time again, by faith, by faith. That's what Noah did when he built the ark. That's what Abraham did when he was called to leave the Ur of the Chaldees. That's a place where he lived. He had to uh, believe and act on faith when God told him to offer his son as a, as a sacrifice, thankfully, for Isaac. And, uh, you know, the angel uh, 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 kind of got in the middle of that, and he didn't have to do that. But by faith, it says, he was willing to give his son, Moses, when he marched through the Red Sea on dry ground. By faith, it didn't make much sense. What about when Joshua and that company of men had to march around the city of Jericho? You know, about the third time, probably the second time, probably the first time, I would be griping. 
I'd be griping and I would say, this is not going to work. This is crazy. God is just doing, God is just making us busy and giving us something to do while he figures out how he's going to get us out of this thing. God will have you do, you know, Jim talking about giving. Sometimes God will have you do something. You say, I don't know. The Lord has just prompted me to give a certain amount of money in a situation or to somebody. It doesn't make sense because God knows my needs over here, and he's prompted me to do something that doesn't make sense. But I'm doing it in faith because I'm prompted by the Spirit to do this. And if I don't, I, I feel like I would be disobeying God. Moses, uh, David, when he faced Goliath. Daniel, when he was thrown into that lion's den. Nehemiah, when he built the wall. Do you think those great heroes that chapter 11 of Hebrews lists, do you think they doubted? Sure. You know why? Because they're human. He doesn't have it on record, but I am sure that when Daniel was put in that lion's den, I'm sure some doubts and questions were running through his mind because he was human. Act on your faith, not on your doubts. Fourthly, doubt your doubts, not your faith. Just because we have a thought in our head... (laughs) doesn't mean it's a correct thought. There's a way, the Bible says, there's a way that seems right to a person, but the way is there in his death. There's a way that seems right, seems to make sense. It seems, you know, this this would make sense, okay? So, you know, and I don't want to give examples. I don't want to... I might inadvertently give an example of somebody here, and I don't want to do that. But, but we begin to rationalize and even rationalize something that is clearly forbidden and sinful in Scripture, but we rationalize it because we, have, we just, you know, it seems right. But really, it's, it's death. Doubt your doubts just because you're thinking it, just because what happens is when we're walking through the valley, to use that picture and that analogy, we can get ourselves into a frenzy of self-talk where we begin to rationalize and think through situations. And before long, we actually think that down is up and up is down because we're going through this situation and it's so dark and lonely, we have just got ourselves into this process of rationality. Here's a thought I had an example, and I may have used this at times before. Most of you will remember John F. Kennedy Jr., the son. Remember, he uh, and his wife and I think her sister uh, were uh, disappeared, plane crashed on a, on a flight uh, going to Martha's Vineyard from somewhere in New York, somewhere close. It was, and this is what the, um, the uh, people that investigated it determined was that he really, even though he was a pilot and he had his license, uh, for him to uh, fly into the, the, the weather and the visibility was going to be very poor, he really wasn't trained. And what, this is what was critical, and some of you have dabbled or fly or any of that, is that he wasn't qualified and trained to fly solely by the instrument panel on the plane. Anybody know what I mean by Meaning that, that he could fly by sight, but he was not trained to properly fly by that instrument panel because that, they said that what happens is 
is that your body and your mind can become disoriented. They're where you actually physically feel that if you are pulling up on the plane, you feel your brain is tricking you into believing that you're, you know, you're climbing, when in reality, you're going down. And what will make the difference is not how you're, you feel, but that instrument panel won't lie to you. Guys, this is our instrument panel. This is our instrument panel. We walk by faith, not by sight. This won't lie to you. It may be against everything you feel. This won't lie to you. Be trained in reading God's instruments for our lives. And the last, keep going back to what you know to be true. There are times in my life where I certainly did not understand the route that I was in and the things that I was going through. But I, but I knew certain things were true. And I've said this, I never, I never thought about abandoning God for this reason, is I just knew too much. What I mean, I don't mean intellectually. Yeah, I mean, you know, but I mean, I knew too much about who God was. I knew that even in this, God will work all things together for good to those that love him and are called according to his purpose. I knew what Joseph said at the end of Genesis where he says what God is, what man has meant for evil, God has intended for good. I didn't know how all that was going to happen, but I knew that God never sleeps on the job. And even though he may choose to allow me to walk through the valley of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because his presence is always with me. His rod and his staff, Scripture says, they comfort me. Paul would say things, if you, one of my favorite chapters in Scripture, I quote, quote Romans 8, 28. Romans 8, if you ever get discouraged, read Romans 8. Because as he, after he goes through the perils and trials and tribulations, he concludes by declaring, for I am persuaded. Some of you just aren't persuaded. You dabble. You're, you're dabbling in Christianity. You're dabbling with Jesus. You need to get all in. You need to become persuaded that even death and hell itself comes against you. You are persuaded that he will work all things together for good. That life, death, famine, and all these things, I am more than a conqueror because I am persuaded. I am convinced. Some of you need to get convinced and be persuaded. 2 Timothy 1.12, he says, I know in whom I have believed. You may think some things, you may hope some things, you might know some things, but there comes a place where you just say, I just know that I know that I know that this is true. 
And that's not always through an intellectual pursuit. But it, God uses His Word, He uses His Spirit, because the Bible says also in Romans 8 that He bears witness that we are His children by the witness of the Holy Spirit. There's a lot of sermons that I have in 35 years of preaching that I will probably never see the light of day. Because back in certain times, I, just, I knew way more than I know now. I was way smarter than I am now. I knew more answers about stuff back then that, I mean, I had... But sometimes life does that to you. Now, don't, don't, not, don't hear this. I'm not saying I live in some vagary of doubt because there's some things that I am more convinced of today than I've ever been in my life. But some things and theology and the workings of God and patterns and timelines of Scripture and how, what, when, where. There's some things I guess I'm more willing to say, you know, I don't know. I don't know. Again, I'm not talking about the person of Christ and the cross, the right. I'm talking about some things like, you know, I don't know. I kind of see, I don't know, see it both ways. I see where the Scripture emphasizes this, but then it seems to contradict here. And, and I'm okay because God's got it figured out. I just, but there's some things I'm persuaded. And I'm persuaded that God is sovereignly in control of all things. I am I am, I mean, I will go to the mat if you've ever wrestled. And I did that for a couple of years. Hated every second of it. I believe in the sovereignty of God. I don't believe in anything accidental. And I believe that God always has my best at heart and whatever comes my way whether it's disease, whether it's tragedy or whatever, I still say by faith that God is my rock and that even in this, God will work all things together for good. I love what Paul said when he said, being confident in this, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. You know where he wrote that Philippians 1.6? He wrote it in jail. Hello. At the end of his life, the last book attributed to Paul is 2 Timothy, the last one that the Holy Spirit has saw for us to, to survive, the last letter that he wrote is 2 Timothy. And he begins by writing this, again, from a jail cell. And if you read at the end of the chapter, everybody's abandoned him. Everybody's left him. He even has to write and request a coat because he doesn't you know, have one. But he starts out by saying, For this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he's able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. Sometimes, friends, you may not get all the answers in this life. I would even go as far as to say you will not. We will all die with questions. But Paul said, I've committed all things to him who knows all things and works all things for good. And I've left it there. 
doubts, questions. I'm not saying check your brain at the door and come in and be some part of some cult. God has anointed our brains and our minds just as much as anything. But there are some things we are not going to have it all figured out. We're going to have doubts. And we're going to struggle with unbelief at times, just like those disciples. But those things I don't know, I'm going to leave in his hands because there's so much about him that I do know. So much I do know. That he loves me. That he gave his life for me. That even when I was an enemy, as Jim said earlier, when I was an enemy, he gave his life for me. That much I do know. People will come and say, Pastor, what about this situation, that situation? And, and you just there's no way to there's no way to know. What about this person that took their life? This person that died, you know, are they in heaven? I don't I, I don't know. But what I do know is this God is holy. He's merciful, he's loving, he's compassionate, and he's not willing that any should perish. That I know, and that I am persuaded. And so what I can do is I can just leave that to him. Because it's a scripture in Genesis either 16, 18 or 18, 16. Don't, Don't hold me to that reference. And it says, shall not the judge of all the earth always do right? Well, that doesn't seem fair. It doesn't matter which it seems to you. God is holy, and the judge of all the earth always does right. Even when you may not understand or agree, guess what? He is the standard of right. And Paul, I think, could say and agree, I've committed it to him, and I can leave it with him. Paul could say, I believe, I can commit it to him and live with doubt and uncertainty. Because there will come a day in which all that doubt, all that uncertainty will be fully known when I see him face to face. Don't get distracted what's going on here now. This ain't it. But there will be a day in which all that is unknown will be made plain, I believe. As Spurgeon says, in the light of the Lamb. Remember Revelation? It says there will be no need for light in heaven with Christ because the Lamb, Jesus, will be that light. What does light do? Light reveals. And all that's uncertain, all that's unknown, all that's dark now will be made plain in the light of 